Wait, have you seen about in in Texas the Bar Lives Matter protests? No. It's so gross. It's, it's just so people that gross. want bars to be open? I think so. Because Texas, they're like, we have a huge fucking influx. We're pausing. Like, you can't have people over. Everybody needs mess. to behave better so that we can get this show on the road. Like, Well, everybody needs to behave like they think of somebody else besides themselves. Like, they need to... Th- everybody needs to behave like they care about some other person yeah plus like like i'm life more than profits i get it i'm a terrible person i want to go get a wax oysters i want to go get some i can't get oysters i want to go get but i want all the things that the terrible people want i just recognize that we haven't earned them yet wait a minute you get a wax when you're pregnant? You know what? That, because you, yes, of course, you, you have to offer that as a service to all the people that are going to have to go down there and investigate. <laughs> I'm, just sorry. What? <laughs> I'm not a monster. Wait a Dear readers, I don't know if you can hear, I don't know how sensitive the microphone is, but it's a thunderstorm, so it's so (gasps) moody. And me here, it's no storm. (gasps) Oh, you know what? Can I say something about um, my Jack the Ripper? I found like a little thing I wanted to say before we close the book on him. And with all the thunder, I really want to say it. I'm just kidding. It's for sure a him. Yes. Um, On the night of September 29th, 1888, um, Catherine Eddowes, one of the victims, was found lying drunk on Aldgate High Street, and they took her into custody, and they released her at one in the morning when she was sober enough to go home. And when she left, she gave the police a fake name, like you do in a situation mm-hmm. like that. And the Obviously. fake name she made up is Mary Kelly. And the same night she was released from jail was the night that Jack the Ripper killed her. And he went on to kill another woman, another victim whose name was Mary Kelly. <gasps> that makes me feel like this person knew, like they were the police. I think it's I, a th- crazy coincidence. But I didn't mention that. that and then I the read about like, it this week in something on Wikipedia. And I was like, oh, my God, I cannot believe I didn't know that. What a crazy. I love coincidence stories. And I was like, that. Ugh is bananas this whole podcast is coincidence stories i adore coincidences but the question is are there such thing as coincidences we don't know we don't know we don't know like was robert the doll one big coincidence oh if you like coincidences there's also a really fun radio lab called oh my god get ready i'm gonna sound so smart it's called stochasticity which is a fancy word for coincidence see and then, so you have stoicity. Stochasticity. Sorry, you have stochastic. <laughs> you, have- <laughs> you have stochasticity. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Stochasticity. You have coincidence. And then on the low spectrum, you have quinkadink, which is a trash way of saying coincidences. So for all of our dear readers, we have highbrow, medium brow, low brow. We have all of the brows. We have a full waxing brow situation. For coincidence, the word. We, <laughs> we also have three different levels of Patreons. Is that what a, what a coincidence? I don't think we have so. Lowbrow, medium, highbrow. And don't forget with that highbrow, you get a little ep once a month. You get, you get an, an extra, extra tiny episode of Tiny Creepy Little Freaky Deaky episode. Uh-uh. That was good. <laughs> Sarah used to figure out a way where we can make it into a song, and so we should do what we just did there and make it into a song and let that be the introduction <gasps> of the tiny episode. one of the best ideas you've ever had in your life. <laughs> Fair. Okay, so, dear readers, the story I'm about to tell you, um, all, all the source pretty much comes from this 
article from The New Yorker that was called The Voyeur's Motel. And it's an article written by Gay Talese a few years ago. And he went on to write a whole book by the same name. There's also a documentary I watched simply called Voyeur. It's on Netflix. And it's about Gay Talese, the author of this article, and his relationship with the man this article's about. So cool. Um, Basically, the first thing that ended up happening is that Gay Talese, who is a journalist, got a letter in January of 1980. I'm going to read you some parts of that letter. That, and this is from the article that he wrote. Dear Mr. Talese, since learning of your long-awaited study of coast-to-coast sex in America which will be included in your soon-to-be-published book, The Neighbor's Wife, I feel I have important information that I could contribute to its contents or to the contents of a future book. He went. He goes on to explain that he's purchased a motel and that his reason for purchasing it was to satisfy my voyeuristic tendencies and compelling interest in all phases of how people conduct their lives, both socially and sexually. I did this purely out of my unlimited curiosity about about people and not as just a deranged voyeur. So he then goes on to explain that he kept a log and a record of all the people that he was watching and compiled statistics that had to do with their age, their body types, where they were from, and their sexual behavior inside the hotel. He says, these individuals were from every walk of life. The businessman who takes his secretary to a motel during the noon hour, which is generally classified as hot sheet trade in the motel business. Married couples traveling from state to state on business or vacation. Couples who aren't married but live together. Wives who cheat on their husbands and vice versa. Lesbianism, of which I made a particular study. Homosexuality, of which I had little interest but still watched to determine motivation and procedure. The 70s, later part, brought another sexual deviation forward, namely group sex, which I took great interest in watching. I have seen most human emotions in all their humor and tragedy carried to completion. Sexually, I have witnessed, observed, and studied the best firsthand, unrehearsed, non-laboratory sex between couples and most other conceivable sex deviations during the past 15 years. My main objective in wanting to provide you with this confidential information is the belief that it could be valuable to people in general, and sex researchers in particular. Presently, I cannot reveal my identity because of my business interest, but it will be revealed when you can assure me that this information would be held in complete confidence. So, Gay Talese Wait, is... there's... The Gay Talese is like doing this article and he gets this email or a letter yeah handwritten from a letter. guy who's like a guy who's like listen i know it all i've seen it all this is insane this is insane yeah um and not only that but i'm not a pervert i'm studying it and i want to offer you <laughs> my study so i'm laughing because it's like i don't i'm not a pervert i just play one on tv that's <laughs> what he's saying he, he's like it's I don't get off. I just am interested. So Gay Talese is not sure he's going to want to use any of this in his book because he's I think he's not really sure of the moral implications of moving forward with that. But despite him feeling unsure, he does want to go meet this guy. So he ends up going to Denver and he meets Gerald Foose. Gerald Foose says he'll give him a room at his motel that doesn't have surveillance in it. And he tells him, you've got to keep it chill because I haven't told my mother-in-law that I do this. And she's sometimes around helping, working the front desk. I haven't told my kids that I do this, but my wife, Donna, does know. Now, Gerald was the first of two children. His parents were Natalie and Jake Foose. And he has a younger brother, Jack. He grew up and says he was by nature sort of a loner. He grew up on a farm. His parents didn't talk to him about sex, um, but he obviously could learn about the birds and bees because he's living on a farm. So you just look out the window and see what everybody is doing. Um, I don't think looking out at a farm and going, 
That's how you make a baby. That just yeah, I don't the know. birds and the bees doesn't compute. You can't watch bees have sex. Well, another That's bullshit. Another way he learned is that he, when he was nine, his aunt moved onto the farm, not actually not onto the farm, but the farm next door, and he would go peep at her, and watch her, and loved watching her naked. Loved watching her. Um, he said that she was one of the most beautiful women he ever laid eyes on. And he did end up seeing her have sex once with his uncle, but he didn't like it or anything. He actually felt kind of jealous because he was so sort of possessive of her. Wow. And he, he had a girlfriend in high school. She was a cheerleader. She actually ended up breaking up with him when she found out he had a foot fetish. Poor guy. Shamed for his foot fetish. He would go on to do great things. He meets Donna, who's a nurse in Aurora, Colorado. Those of you who don't know, I'm from Denver, so nearby. They married in 1960, and he had, like, just kind of a shitty, boring office job. But he got his yayas out by going around at night and kind of doing, like, peeping Tom stuff. But Donna knew all about it. Then he finds this motel on East Colfax, and purchases it, the Manor House Motel. He chose it because it was a single story and it had like a peaked roof or whatever. And the roof mm-hmm. had enough space that there was an attic and you could stand fully upright in the attic. So he was like, this is perfect for me. Um, it had 21 rooms oh. and he and his wife Donna live on the property. So he ends up going to dinner with Gay Talise, who's now staying at this ho- motel. And at dinner, Gay Talese is right away like, have you ever felt guilty about this? And he's like, not really, no. It seems like he doesn't have like any anxiety or uh, sort of regrets surrounding doing any of this. It sounds like he doesn't believe what he's doing is an invasion of privacy. No. He just is like a different. For one thing, he's reasons that no one knows. So no one ever had that feeling of violation. Mm-hmm. Um, and he really fancies himself like a sex scientist. Like, did you see Masters of Sex? Johnson and, about Johnson and Johnson? No. He but thinks I, of himself as uh, one of them or Kinsey or right. something. I do know Kinsey, Indiana University, where I went to school. Kinsey Institute. Love it. That's crazy. Okay. I mean, it's not crazy. I mean, I... Uh, uh, I do feel like when I was a kid, I always felt like I was being watched always. Like I didn't get fully naked in my bedroom for probably my whole life. Great idea. Because I was like, I was afraid somebody was always watching me. Like, you know how you change in the swim, like in a pool locker room? Mm-hmm. That's how you, you always changed. Your, I always changed wow. that way. I was so afraid of people watching me. Now I'm like, watch on. No, yeah, don't use that in court. I am not <laughs> consenting to peeping toms. <laughs> um. So when he gets the hotel, he goes up to that attic and puts in three layers of carpeting so that to kind of muffle any sort of sounds from above or footfall. And he gets these sort of fake ventilators built that then he has to install because he's obviously can't have anyone know what's up. So he and Donna install these fake ventilators in uh, like half of the rooms. I think there was half the rooms had them or something. So... They'd put them in and she'd go and lie on the bed, which was beneath the ventilators. And he'd be like, can you see me? And she'd be like, yeah, I can see you. So then he'd, you know, take tools and kind of change the slats on them so that he was obscured but could still see in. That's insane. Yeah. So this was a lot of work. And then, you know, they're open for business and he's able to start kind of watching people by 1966. And like I said, remember, he only did half the rooms. So I love picturing that Donna or him's at the front desk and someone goes to check in and they give him like 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 a bouncer at a club. They give him like an up and down and are like room three. <laughs> I don't want to. Watch. I'm not interested. Yeah. I'm not interested in watching you Ooh, sex. <laughs> room 18. See you later. Like so bizarre. So sometimes if Donna thought they were like a particularly attractive couple, she'd go up to the attic with him to watch and she and Gerald would have sex in the attic. Okay, so now it's not just science. Nope. 
he definitely <laughs> admits to masturbating and to getting sexual gratification from watching certain things. But he also admits to sometimes just taking notes. And he'd be up there all the time watching people. So, you know, 90% of the time, he's not actually watching sex. He And he would write it all down. So he'd just write about, you know, a couple having a fucking benign conversation or a fight about something or watching he was really disappointed about how much tv people watched especially if the couple was hot he'd be like angry <laughs> that they watched tv all night but and is this where he would like cut the cable and be like let's see what happens well i'll talk about what he does to interfere in guest relations um because he doesn't just keep to himself uh talise though describes gerald as a sort of Joe Schmo and a square even, he says. He's like, this is a guy you would look at and talk to and he doesn't give off those vibes of I'm a creep at all. Um, Foose ends up taking Talise to the attic and showing him his crawl space and they end up crawling around and looking through vents and totally spying together. While they're spying together, Talise's tie goes through the grate and he doesn't notice and Foose like freaks out and pulls up the tie and gives him a look like holy shit because and then sort of reading that you realize the gravity of the situation of getting caught doing something like that <laughs> that you was know? a good pun I'm sorry oh the gravity of <laughs> I didn't even mean to <laughs> well the tie was pushed down by gravity so there it is so over these past years before uh, Gay Talese came. Foose has been keeping this manuscript that he's writing everything down in. He calls his own manuscript the Voyeur's Journal, and he's mailing pieces of it over the years to Gay Talese. I don't know if it was over the years, to be fair. It was probably over a period of months. I don't know. His journals reflect that he seems to believe that what he's doing is bigger than he is. It's like right. a service to the world at large. He is in the service industry, so. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm going to read you one of the first um, entries in the journal, okay? Okay. Today was the fulfillment and realization of a dream that has constantly occupied my mind and being. Today I purchased the Manor House Motel, and that dream has been consummated. Finally, I will be able to satisfy my constant yearning and uncontrollable desire to peer into other people's lives. My voyeuristic urges will now be placed into effect on a plane higher than anyone else has contemplated. So it's important to note that some of the dates in this journal that he took don't line up with real world occurrences, um, and that'll matter later. In a journal entry that's dated November 24th, 1966, he describes using one of the viewing platforms for the first time. And he writes like, subject number one, Mr. and Mrs. W. of Southern Colorado. Description, approximately 35-year-old male in Denver on business, 5'10", 180 pounds, white collar, probably college educated. Wife, 35 years old, 5'4", 130 pounds, pleasing plump, dark hair, Italian extraction, educated. 37, 28, 37. So like a guess at her measurements. Ugh. Activity. Room number 10 was rented to this couple at 7 p.m. by myself. He registered and I noticed he had class and would be a perfect subject to have the distinction of being number one. After res registration, I immediately left for the observation walkway. It was tremendous seeing my first subjects for the initial observation enter the room. The subjects were represented to my vision, clearer than anticipated. I had a feeling of tremendous power and exhilaration at my accomplishment. I had accomplished what other men had only dreamed of doing, and the thought of superiority and intelligence occupied my brain. As I peered into the vent from my observation platform, I could see the entire motel room. And to my delight, the bathroom was also viewable, together with the sink, commode, and bathtub. I could see the subjects below me, and without question, they were a perfect couple to be the first to perform on the stage that was created especially for them, and many others to follow, and I would be the audience. After going to the bathroom with the door closed, she sat in front of the mirror looking at her hair and remarked she was getting gray. He was in an argumentative mood and appeared disagreeable with his assignment in Denver. 
The evening passed uneventful until 8.30 p.m. when she finally undressed, revealing a beautiful body, slightly plump but sexually attractive anyway. He appeared disinterested when she laid on the bed beside him, and he began smoking one cigarette after another and watching TV. Finally, after kissing and fondling her, he quickly gained an erection and entered her in the male superior position, with little or no foreplay, and orgasmed in approximately five minutes. She had no orgasm and went to the bathroom. Conclusion. They are not a happy couple. He is too concerned about his position and doesn't have time for her. He is very ignorant of sexual procedure and foreplay despite his college education. This is a very undistinguished beginning for my observation laboratory. I'm certain things will improve. So that's an example of what a journal entry might look like. Oh my god. Other ways that the vents came in handy was that he one time witnessed a dog taking a shit in the room and a couple trying to hide it. And then he, when they went to check out, he was like, I'm keeping your deposit and went in the room and showed them where the dog shit. They must have thought he was psychic. Um, He Uh... also created an honesty test. This is so wild. He would leave a suitcase with a cheap padlock on it in the people's closet. And when a guest came and checked in, he would say to his wife in front of them, um, hey, somebody left behind a suitcase and they say it has like $1,000 in it. And then he would run up to the attic and watch what the people would do. And he said there was 15 guests that he talked about that were uh, tested. And they included like some people, I don't know, a minister, an army lieutenant, whatever. Only two of the 15 returned it to the office with the padlock. The others opened it. And, of course, there wasn't $1,000 in it. And then they tried to, like, hide it or throw it away. Interesting, right? Weird. So he's doing all kinds of human testing. Well, I feel like if you did, just as, like, a little bit of a, if you opened it and it had a padlock and you came in and you're like, I found the suitcase, then he'd be like, where's the money? And they probably would get in trouble. I mean, I probably, I don't, I would hope I would, would return, return it. You would return it. Who knows? You would, I would return, return it. it. And I would break <laughs> it open. We're different. <laughs> but I wouldn't Thanks be allowed to break that, it open because Matt would be there and he's a you. So he would be like, he's a me. we got to return I'm a him. Um, yeah. He also watched people use the bathroom and noted that every posi- position imaginable was used when people are using a potty. Isn't that interesting? Do people do like the um, Slater where they, they, they reverse cowgirl yep. it? People did that. <laughs> people side saddled. All kinds of business went on. Um, people side saddled? Crazy, right? Sounds super uncomfortable. I don't know. Maybe they have a wide ass, have wider hips. I don't know. <laughs> Things that upset him that he saw. Um, he saw one guy pee in the girl he was with drink when she wasn't looking. Oh. Um, Again, I talked about him not loving the TV. Um, he would get upset when men didn't sexually sexually satisfy the women they were with. Um, All right, I can get behind that. Yeah, I could get. I could. He's, I, yeah, I'll get behind that. Thank you, Gerald. Um, also, I'm not going to thank him, but I can get behind his disappointment <laughs> because I think a lot of the women felt the same way. Hey, you were not the only <laughs> one that was disappointed by that, Gerald. One time, this guy's there and he has a bucket of fried chicken and he's eating it. And he's wiping his hands on the hotel sheets as a napkin. Yeah. And before Gerald even knew what he was doing, he just says, son of a bitch. And the guy totally hears him and starts no. looking around and like out the window. But he couldn't tell where the noise was coming from. So he's like kind of looking around. And he kind of just starts to get more and more brazen because he's watching people all the time. Like one time... um. This is wild. This hot couple wild. comes in and they and they turn off the lights and off the TV and start having sex. So he can't see them. So he, he's pissed. He goes downstairs out of the attic to the outside, pulls up his car to face their window, turns on his brights, gets out, goes back up to the attic. He like provides lighting for himself. 
Isn't that crazy? My God. That's insane. And he would do this thing where he'd put porn sometimes or like a sex toy somewhere in the room and see if people would find it and use it. Whoa. Or if they just like get mad and report their room was dirty. He was just interested. Um, So at the end of every year, he'd sort of make like a Excel spreadsheet. It was not an Excel spreadsheet, but he'd tally up like an annual report. For him and him alone. Yeah. He would tally like what kinds of sex acts were witnessed, how many orgasms women had, men had. Because again, he's like this pioneering sex researcher. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is the craziest thing about all this, I think. In 1977, there's a journal entry and Gay Talese is reading it in one of the packets of journal entries that Gerald Foose has sent him. And he recounts being witness to a murder where he was up above watching a young couple that came to stay there. And the young couple ends up being um, drug dealers and they're dealing drugs from the hotel room. And he sees them dealing drugs to young kids. And I guess he had a son that maybe had a drug problem. So it hit him really hard. He's really angry with them. And when they go out of the hotel room, Gerald goes in. Because he knows where their drugs are, even though they're hiding them. And he empties their drugs into the toilet and flushes their drugs. And when they come back to the room, the guy goes to get his drugs and they're not there. And he accuses the girl that's with him that she took them. She's like, no, I didn't. And they get in a fight. He starts kind of like slapping her around. And she ends up uh, trying to fight back. And he starts choking her. And she goes unconscious and he leaves. And Foose is watching all this and says that he could see that her chest was moving. So he was like, she's just passed out. out. So he just leaves the attic and doesn't do anything. And the next day the maid comes back to say there's a dead woman in that room. And he calls the police. But he doesn't tell the police. I mean, he tells the police a description of the man, the dude's license plate whatever he has and can remember but he can't tell them i saw it happen i'm sorry he went down to get the brights onto the people having sex but the woman that was passed out and was strangled he couldn't have gone housekeeping like can i check the room and found her no that's true that's so fucked that's true like he cared more about fucking than he did this woman's life listen Gerald Foose. I don't know about uh, use. I don't, I don't, I know about use and I don't think I'm into it. I don't, I'm not into it because I think he's, this is like some non-consensual shit. No one would argue with you there. Except Gerald. (laughs) (sighs) He would say it's non-consensual. I mean, it was. Um, Not really like to stand on there. In 1985, his wife Donna dies and he does eventually marry a woman named Anita Clark who also ends up being very complicit with the whole thing. Um, And they actually even end up purchasing a second hotel down the street and doing four observation vents rooms in that motel. He does sell both of them. What date do you think he brings up? Hey, I'm really like, at what point when you're dating someone and they're like, by the way, I'm really into watching people beginning fucking die beginning, beginning, beginning. I, so it should go on the Hinge profile of yeah. life. It should go, like, right up top. He would put okay. it on his profile. He is not a guy. He doesn't want to get in trouble. He doesn't want to go to jail. He doesn't want any lawsuits against him. But he's also not somebody that holds back uh, telling people about this if he thinks that that's low risk. As soon as he feels safe, like you're not going to retaliate or something – Right. He will tell you everything and he'll dive into his own. um, He'll say things like, oh, and my wife would sometimes watch you, but she has a very healthy relationship with sex. Always has. Not me. Like, I don't know. He he's not somebody that hides. Right. But he literally does hide. So confusing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He sells both the motels in 1995. Because he gets really bad arthritis and he can't really go up there anymore. 
In fact, in the movie, you see him taking one of those. What are those called? The electric chairs that go down the stairs? Um, you mean the Mary Popper, Mary Poppins chairlift? Yeah. yeah. He was riding that up and down? Yeah. So he hurt deck? his knees. He can't do it anymore. They saw the hotel. In spring of 2013, Gerald Foose calls Gay Talese and says, I want to go public with my story. He's old now. And he feels like the statute of limitations will probably protect him. Um, right. He also just, I think, hopes to achieve some sort of redemption. I don't know. He doesn't want to carry it to his grave that he did this. And interestingly enough, the first half of the documentary is about all the stuff I already told you about, which is also what the article is about. But the second half of the movie sort of is covering what happened after he went public with this. What happened to him? What happened to Gay Talese? You know, he got a, he got death threats. He got people calling him saying, you know, who's watching who now? And a lot of anxiety from the way the news portrayed him, which you can imagine a lot of people were didn't have nice things to say about him. Yeah, I can't imagine people were like, go Gerald Foose. Go Gerald Foose. Right. Um, meanwhile, they have to look into this murder thing, right? Yeah. So even though he asked Talise, don't put it in your book, he was like, I'm going to put it in my book. So they have to look into this murder and they can't find a record at the Denver police of any such event. It could be the wrong date because Gerald got dates wrong in his journals. Right. It, it could also be that it was a Jane Doe and they didn't keep the records when it wasn't case closed. Anyway, yeah. one thing that's suspect and doesn't sit well with anybody is that they end up finding a newspaper story about a woman named Irene Cruz that was discovered dead in her motel room, strangled to death. And it was at a really close by motel called the Bean Hotel. And it I don't think the case was closed. And it happened in a two or three week period that was close to when Gerald had written that this happened in his journal. So then the question becomes, how reliable is he a narrator is he? Did he hear that yeah. this story happened and invent in his head that, like, insert himself into it? Or is it a crazy coincidence, as we know from my Jack the Ripper update? Is it stochasticity? And is it or just... Or is it just a coinkadink? Right. <sighs> So he also kind of, though, in his writings, you've heard me read some of them. You can hear a little bit of that God complex. Right. And it's almost like the inserting himself into something like that and also sort of making the killing his fault by being the guy yeah. that dumped the drugs. It just doesn't seem impossible that that would be the case, but we don't know. We don't know if he saw this. We don't know if he made it up. We don't know if he thinks he saw it but didn't. Why would he make up something that makes him look so bad is the other question, because he does seem to care what people think. Yeah. Anyway, Gay Talese publishes this book that he's really excited about. But after the book gets published, they start to see all those dates not lining up. Um, right. The big thing that happens is that there are a few years that – there are journal entries about being a voyeur where he didn't own the hotel. Hmm. So Gatesley's freaks out, disavows his own book before it even hits bookshelves and says the credibility is shot and he can't stand behind it. But right after he goes public and says, I don't know if the only thing I wrote is credible, I can't stand behind it. It turns out that the real story is that Gerald Foose had sold the hotel to his friend, Earl Ballard. Earl Ballard was also a voyeur and knew about the slats and watched. They also watched together. They also, Gerald Foose retained his own key and was allowed to come and go as he pleased to watch people. So that means the journal entries were not lies and they probably were happening around those dates. But Gerald Foose didn't tell Gay Talese about the hotel ownership shifting, which made him look like he was lying. lying. But the reason he didn't tell him is that he didn't want to bring Earl Ballard into this. Because right. Earl Ballard doesn't want anyone to know he's a voyeur. 
So he's yeah. like, oh, I'm going to protect that guy and just leave him completely out of my story. Whoa. But I was still going up and watching, so I'm going to talk about how I'm going up and watching. Anyway, he ends up feeling <sighs> terrible because Gerald Foose and uh, Gaitlis have this pretty intense relationship at this point that has been cultivated over years of visiting, writing, talking about this story. And he felt like he ruined Gay's life when this stuff came out and ruined the book, sort of. Yeah, I don't want to say he ruined other people's lives, but like... He definitely, I don't, I, I have a hard time feeling bad for Gerald Foose in any way. I feel bad for Gay Talese, but also Gay Talese went and looked at people too. Like, They're all questionable stuff. Like, all of it is like, oh, you had a chance to like do an interesting report on something and convey this information. Don't say it wasn't interesting. I mean, it was fascinating. It totally it was like, is. it's so interesting, but like, more the moral implications of it are super fucking flawed well so at the end of the movie toward the end um gerald foose's reading is like really sad and he's reading this shitty new york times review of the book that's not nice to him and not (laughs) nice to the book and he says it makes the voyeur he talks about himself in the third person as the voyeur a lot and he goes it makes the voyeur look like nothing but a creep and anita his wife is there and she goes well you are. <laughs> Thanks, Anita. He goes. Thank you, Anita. He goes. My God, Anita. Well, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> and I just like it was a very cute, strange moment. Um, also, just the Manor Motel, the Manor House Motel, has since all this happened. Not because of it, uh, but since all this happened, it has been destroyed, and they have visit the site of where it once was in the movie, and it's just sort of an empty lot. One thing that's so fun is that if you go to Manor House Motel on Yelp, it's got all five star reviews and they're all <laughs> and they're all like postmortem posted, I think, of the of this story um, in the sense that a that. lot of them are just winks about it. So I'm going to read you one of the reviews that was left in please, December please. of 2017. Sad this place isn't around anymore. About 10 years ago, my girlfriend and I stayed there a couple of nights and we had about the hottest sex that I ever remember. I can't explain it, but it just felt like there was someone else present. Almost like we had a threesome without another person being there. On another note, we asked the maid to trade out our bedspread because it was all greasy. Chicken. Yeah. And there's like some people that post reviews that uh, mention the suitcase. Like it's all fake reviews, but it's all five stars and fun. Um, and that is the story of Gay Talese's article and book on Gerald Foose, the voyeur. Gay Talese, Gerald Foose. What difficult names to say back to back. You did an excellent job. Thank you. I really enjoyed that story. That how did you find that story? Was it just? Um, I knew about it because it's a weird Colorado story, so it's sort of on my register. Um, I, I love that I usually story. clock stuff that happens uh, in my hometown, and this that makes was one of them. And I was like, "Oh my god, this is the craziest thing! I've got to go stay at this hotel." And then I found out it was destroyed. <laughs> also, I would not want to stay there. No. I would stay there and keep and change like I did in my youth. I would put a towel on and I would never show any part of my body. I would and watch so much TV and eat so much chicken. I would do a one and woman like, show. I'd lie down you should lie down on that bed and do one woman sex in the city. <laughs> no, I would take pasta and I would eat it on the bed and use it as like marinara so I was like I'd get the bed super fucking like I would do everything that he didn't like to watch just watch TV and but I'd get go the in and like shitty. say loud like I can't wait to have sex and then so they give me an observation room like you just want to make sure you get in the right rooms right totally oh, wouldn't you be sad if he saw you and was just like mm. nah. and you looked up and there was no vent in your ceiling you were like really this is upsetting. Well, also would be funny as if I took it and I took a piece of paper and I put it over the vent and I made sex noises and pretended to have sex and just really frustrated mm-hmm. them. Like that would just be fun to fuck with them. See, there's so many pranks like, you could do. You do want to go to this so hotel. Many pranks. I do want to go. I do want to go just to spite them and to con them to voyeur mm-hmm. on their voyeur. Mm-hmm. Like I would like to be a voyeur on their voyeur. Yep. Okay. Is it my turn? Yeah. 
Okay, I'm doing the story of Graham Thorne. How would you say this name? G-R-A-E-M-E. Graham. Graham? Graham Thorne. Okay, I got my information from Wikipedia, Murderpedia. My favorite website name ever, groovyhistory.com. Whoa, <laughs> groovy. To Bueller. Okay, so this takes place in 1960 in Sydney, um, or in New South Wales, Australia. And I said Australia like that because I'm not even going to try an Aussie accent because they're so hard. They are. So the um, Sydney Opera House, have you heard of her? I'd be familiar with the Sydney Opera House. I've been there. You'd be familiar? You've been there? Been did there. you do the thing where you look, climb the rope? No. I just, I no. think I did a tour. I was uh, seventh grade, however old you are then, 12, 13 or something. Yeah. Okay. So you didn't do the life risking thing? No, but it's very pretty. It's beautiful. There's so many envelopes. So they were building it in 1960 and it was proving to be a little bit more expensive than they originally intended. I think whenever people build things, just know it's going to cost you way more freaking money. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So their wise plan was to create a lottery. The Sydney, So it was a lottery to raise money for the building. And the grand prize was 100,000 Australian pounds. The Australians then changed to dollars in 66. But at this point, basically, the grand prize was the equivalent to $3 million. So the winner was ticket number 3932, and it belonged to Basil Thorne. So at this time, it was pretty new, I think, in the lottery game, and they really didn't hide people's names, faces, personal information, or in, or images, or details like that. When the name was pulled, they, they listed that the payout date was July 7th, and the winner was announced on the front page. It was not made private at all. So Basil Thorne is the father. He's married to this woman, Frida. They have, I only read this in one article, and the article was Wikipedia, but apparently they had, they had a daughter named Cheryl, who was institutionalized, but they definitely had two other kids named Graham and Belinda. Graham is eight, Belinda is three. So they lived in the Sydney suburb of Bondi in New South Wales. Graham had a pretty consistent routine where he would leave for school and he would wait on the corner about like 300 meters away and he would wait for a car to pick him up. So this woman, Phyllis Smith, with her son, they would go on the corner, they'd pick Graham up and they'd bring him to school. And that was his routine every day was to walk to the corner, wait for the car to pick him up and go. On July 7th, as I mentioned before, the day of the payout, on July 7th, Graham did his thing. At 8.30 in the morning, he left his house and he waited on the corner and Phyllis Smith came at 8.40 and Graham was not there. So she was like, that's super strange. She drove by the house and she goes, hey, Thorne family, where's Graham? And they were like, yo, he left and she goes oh maybe he had another ride maybe somehow he got to school so she drove her kid to school and while she was at the school she checked with the teachers and asked what had happened to Graham if Graham was there and the teacher said nah he never showed up so she immediately goes back to the thorn house I know she immediately goes back to the thorn house and she tells Frida the mother the mother immediately calls New South Wales police um, and to report him missing. The sergeant police officer comes over to her house at 9.30. At 9.40 in the morning, a man with a foreign accent called the house. The police sergeant picked up the phone pretending to be Basil, the father, and says, I have your boy. I want 25,000 pounds before, I want 24,000 pounds before five o'clock this afternoon. I'm not fooling. If I don't get the money before five o'clock, I'll feed the boy to the sharks. The sharks? Where the fuck are it's, they? It's Australia. There's oh. sharks everywhere in Australia. That shit is Shark the City. The Great Barrier Reef. It's the Great Barrier Reef and a, my worst nightmare is what that is. So the sergeant is just coming and learning about this case. And not 10 minutes later, he gets a phone call. And so he says to the kidnapper... I don't have the money. Of course, he didn't realize that the Thorn is the same family that is about to get this huge payout. Um, the kidnapper is like, you can, and I'm going to call you back at five o'clock with more details. And he hangs up. So then, obviously, the police are coming. They're investigating. They're starting to search. They're looking for this little kid. He's eight years old. And at 9.47 p.m., 
The kidnapper calls back, and at this point, another police officer is there and is pretending to be Basil again, and they're doing the vamp thing so they can trace the call. I think it's the 60s, so I just can't imagine their tracing technology to be, like, really great, and it probably they would need to have him on the phone for two days to trace him, but whatever. I don't think and it's they the found... the same police officer over and over pretending to be the dad, right? No, it was a different police officer. See, that it seems <laughs> risky business. To me, that seems super fucking suspicious. What if the guy's like, uh, this isn't Basil? I'm also picturing an American police officer that doesn't do an Australian <laughs> accent very well. <laughs> Good day, mate. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, we have your son. And he's like, throw some shrimp on the barbie. <laughs> he's like, what are you like, talking about? This is about? definitely his father. This is great. <laughs> so, so they do the trace thing. I didn't find that they actually traced it because, again, I'm sure that they needed the call to be longer. It's like a movie. It never works out. So the kidnapper starts giving instructions that he wants the money in two paper bags, um, but then hangs up immediately without providing any more um, instructions. So the police are searching. The media finds out. And, of course, it's an eight-year-old child who is kidnapped so it, and ransomed. So it's going haywire. It's going crazy. People want answers. There's a press conference where the police talk and the father makes a plea to the public. You know, that old chestnut And he says, all I can say is, for God's sake, send him back to me in one piece. So sad. And at this time, I think it's important to note, at this time in the 60s, this idea of kidnapping and ransoming was considered a very American thing. It was not considered um, to be coming to Australia. It was a very, it was a new thing. It felt very American. And this is the first time it's happening here in Australia. July 8th, so the next day, they find Graham's school case in another suburb. And they get a tip that the boy was heading to the hills with two men. But again, I don't ever trust these tips because we've heard time and time again that they don't actually mean much. Um, Three days later on July 11th, they found his school cap, his raincoat, a lunch bag with an apple still in it, and his math books. I don't like that. I don't like that at all. So they obviously put a reward out. It was initially $5,000, and then it was up to $15,000 by newspapers. And when there's, an, when there's a reward and a soliciting of any information, a lot of people fucking call. There were hoax calls. People are trying to get that money. While they're doing this, they're compiling evidence of what happened. And as you know, he was kidnapped on July 7th. But on, Ju- on June 14th, There was two conflicting pieces of information. Either they got a phone call or they got a visit from a guy with a foreign accent, with a foreign European accent. Mm -hmm. And he came and he acted as an investigator or he called and he acted as an investigator. And he wanted to confirm that this was the address of the Thorne family. And he also wanted to make sure that the phone number that they had on file, which was previously unlisted, that that was correct suspicious then there were also reports that multiple people spotted this guy lingering by the park across the street from the house and on the morning of the kidnapping people saw a 1955 ford custom line car color iridescent blue sounds like a cute car but it was double parked very close to the intersection where thomas would go and wait for the car or i'm sorry where graham would go and wait for the car mm-hmm So while they did this, obviously, they're throwing everything at it. They're worried about Graham. And they discovered that 5,000, 4 or 5,000 people have this vehicle in New South Wales, in Australia. So they search and they, they find that it's owned by this guy named Stephen Bradley, who's an immigrant. And he's like, yeah, I have that car. Not mine. No, not me. On August 16th. Weeks after the kidnapping, they found the body of Graham Thorne <laughs> in a park um, 1.5 kilometers away from where his school case was found. No. I know. I know. He was ID'd by his father. His body was wrapped in a blue tartan rug or blanket. Um 
and it was tucked in the ledge. He was tied with string. He was gagged. He was bound. And he was still wearing his school uniform. Why the fuck? What they found was his cause of death was asphyxiation and trauma to the head. And they don't know how if if it was both of them or one or the other. Mm-hmm. They don't know when he sustained both or which one actually killed him. But it was one of the two. So... What's interesting at this point is that the blanket, they were able to find the tartan and the number of its, it was number 639 of 3,000, which were made in Australia. So they were able to narrow down. This was like a pretty specific blanket. Um, And they realized that, okay, so they found this blanket and it was very specific. So they were narrowing down. This is kind of at the beginning of forensic scientists and forensic evidence to be used in murder. So While they also found the blanket, they also found that the body had two types of tree found on the blanket and on the body. They also found hair. They found a Pekingese hair and they found a blonde hair. Mm -hmm. And then they also found they were able to look at his stomach contents and fungus on his shoes, mold on his shoes and fly larva and concluded that he had been killed within 24 hours of his kidnapping. So he was killed right away. They also found fragments of this pink mortar, this lime stock mortar that was found on his body or on um, on the blanket and body. So they figured he was also stored under a house mm-hmm. before he was eventually brought to the park. Either he was stored under the house or the blanket or there was some evidence that someone had been there to the house, had also been at the blanket. So the police searched for all of these things, right? The blanket, the car, the trees, the limestock, the pink mortar, and the blue car. And so they contacted a local postman who was like, I think I know the place. And so they got a tip. And again, it led to this guy, Stephen Bradley, who was a Hungarian immigrant. And they found at his place that he had the car. The blanket was a gift to his wife from her friend, they found that they had a Pekingese dog named Cherry. Holy His shit. wife had blonde-dyed hair. And when the detectives were rummaging in the garden, they found some old film. And they cleaned it off. And they found that there were pictures of the whole family sitting on that blue blanket. So everything. And what was interesting is the two types of tree. One of them, I think, was a cypress tree, which is very common in Australia. But the other tree was a little bit rare. But the combination of both of those were really strange. There was also the pink lime, uh, the pink mortar at that house as well. So once they get to the house, they realize that the Bradley family had actually moved out on July seventh to a to rent an apartment somewhere nearby. And they were currently the week prior to finding them, they had left the country and they were sailing to London. So when it docked, I think for a break, it, a break in Colombo, Ceylon, and Sri Lanka. On October 10th, there were two Sydney policemen waiting for Bradley. After five weeks, he was extradited from there to Australia. So he finally gets to Australia on November or, uh, yeah, on November 18th, 1960. And allegedly, he makes a confession to one of the police officers right before the plane lands. He denies that. The next day, he then writes a confession of what happened, um, which in English, which he later tries to retract. But this is what his English confection, confection, hmm. confession says. I went out and watched the thorn boy leaving the house and seen him for about three mornings, and I have seen where he went. And one morning, I have followed him to the school at Bellevue Hill. One or two mornings, I have seen a woman pick him up and take him to the school. On the day we moved from Clontarf, I went out to Edward Street. I parked the car in a street. I don't know the name of the street. It is off Wellington Street. I've got out of the car, and I walked to the corner until the boy walked down to the car. So it sounds like... He knew the boy was going to wait for a car. He drove up. He convinced the boy that he was going to drive him to school. And he knew the whole story. Mm -hmm. And eight-year-old Graham willingly got in the car. Horrible. I just don't get the point. Like, why is he... He wanted money. But he killed him right away. He didn't even wait for them to... He didn't mean to kill him is what his defenses. And I'm actually inclined to believe that he didn't mean to kill him. That doesn't excuse it. That doesn't justify. That doesn't. That's no excuse. So what happened? But Why did he accidentally to kill get him? the money? But and and I gotta tell you, there's no, 
there's no information on how the family got the money or whatever, but this guy obviously never got money. Um, so his trial was in his trial was in 1961, and they learned a little bit about him. He was born in Budapest. Um, he survived World War II and the communist takeover. He came to Australia in 1950. He has kind of a bad track record about staying married, but he gets divorced in 48. He gets married in 52. He has a child. Then his wife died in 55 by a car accident, and they said it could have been suspicious, this car accident. Then he anglicized his name. He was born in Budapest. His name was not Stephen Bradley, um, but he changed his name in 56. In 1958, he got married for a third time. It was a woman with two kids. And so he worked a number of jobs. And with his growing family, with the more people he had to support, he was he was hemorrhaging money. He was losing his savings. And people think that he was inspired by the 1960 um, Puget Ransom in Paris. So he went forward and he found a family with a bunch of money that he could possibly get money out of. He pled not guilty to murder. He was identified by the witnesses, including Frida. She recognized him and she ID'd him. He admitted to the kidnapping. He assaulted the boy. The boy was unconscious. He wrapped him up. He put him in the car, the trunk of his car. He went to make the first ransom call. He saw the boy was alive. He went to then check on the boy again at three o'clock. And he said that's when he found that the boy was dead. Mm. There was evidence at the trial that that states that the forensic team had put a breathing mask in the trunk. And they said it wasn't totally like they don't think he suffocated. They think it was in conjunction. It was the assault that did it. It wasn't just the boot. Got it. So he would be guilty. I think they had to figure out the actual cause of death. The trial lasted for nine days. He was sentenced to penal servitude for life, which I guess in Australia, you're, it's a penal colony. I don't know. It's the maximum penalty for murder in New South Wales. He was sent to a super maximum, that's how they describe it, a super maximum facility prison. And he worked as a hospital orderly, which is like a hospital assistant technician, and was protected from other prisoners. He divorced his last wife in 65, and he died three years later from a heart attack at 42 while playing in a tennis competition at the prison, which I'm like, I don't know how I feel about like a prison offering tennis. I, I don't Yeah, it sounds love like a that. country club. <laughs> yeah, it just, he was like worked as a medical technician and then it just didn't, that didn't compute. But maybe I, Wikipedia had it wrong, but they said tennis competition and I can't imagine. I know Australian football is different than American <laughs> so football. But like, it was table like, tennis. It was just ping pong. <laughs> so the Thorne family moved. Um, after Graham's death to another suburb. Basil, the father, died in 78. And Frida, his mother, died in 2012 at the age of 86. So not that long ago. Mm. A lot of people say this marked the end of the innocence in Australia. And then after this, obviously things changed as we as we're quite familiar with happening. Lottery winners are given the opportunity or the option to remain anonymous when claiming large sums of money. The case was obviously huge in the forensic um, science world, and it created, it, it, it funneled in new kidnapping laws in Australia. And like I said before, it was like this kidnapping for ransom was a very American thing. But this was the first time it was seen in Australia, and it just really fucked with everybody. Seriously. And so that's the story of little Graham Thorne, eight years old. Terrible. Very sad story. So sad. So sad. So sad. It just was like, it's it's pretty wild, just like the greed of it all and how, when I read it, I was so surprised about how kidnapping for ransom was considered an American thing. Probably just like gun control, like mass shootings. Tons of and, shitty you stuff know, is like, considered an American thing. Why? And like, this is what we're spreading to the world? <laughs> this, that is the Corona. Shit. Am I right or am I right? <laughs> if you weren't right, it wouldn't be as sad. Is that right? If you were right, it wouldn't be as sad. It's awful. Terrible. I mean, yeah. Well, you did a good job telling it. 
Did I do a beginning, middle, and end? Mm-hmm. You did. Thank you. Oh, guys, sometimes I just go list. Sometimes we do like a list situation yeah, so, and we just... You know what? Some stories are just lists. Let's face it. Let's face it. Let's just call it what it is. Let's call it tomato, tomato. Tomato, tomato. <laughs> tomato, tomato. Dear readers, we love you. Listen, dear readers. You're listening... Wait, you're listening to Truly... Darkly... Creepily starring the beautiful Carrie Ipema and featuring Quinn Foster. <laughs> Ooh, that was rough. I guess I that set myself up for that one. That was fun for me. I enjoyed that very much. And featuring Quinlan Posner as herself. <laughs> we'll see you next time. No, we won't. It's a podcast. <laughs>